Y'all's great worship, and as uh, Northridge and Cactus and Chapel join us, we hope you guys had a, a great time of worship as well. I gotta, <clears throat> I gotta tell you, maybe it makes me weird, but I just never tire of Christmas music, okay? So a little bit of tidbit about Jamie. I just, I just love Christmas music. I wasn't raised much in church at all, and, uh, but I did go to church twice a year. I thought that was pretty good growing up, and we went every Christmas and Easter, and, uh, and, and I just have fond memories of these Christmas songs that we sing. And so, you know, all throughout December, I just enjoy uh, the Christmas music that we sing. Uh, I will tell you, I, I do struggle after 30 years now of, of regular preaching what to say at Christmas time. So I, I love the music, hate the sermons, because it's like it's a, it's a short Christmas story, and it's a very profound, powerful story, but I feel sometimes like a broken record at Christmas and Easter, because again, I've been doing Doing this for a rather long time. All that to say that this year has been rather fun for me as we've slowed down a bit in this pandemic, uh, spent a little bit more time with the Magi, just one aspect of the Christmas story, these wise men from the East as we have been talking about them for the three weeks here leading up to Christmas. So we have the final installment on that today, and I think you're going to be very encouraged and challenged in your spiritual life. So as we're all gathered now as one church, for our time in the Word. Why don't you guys do this with me, bow, and let's ask God to bless our time together. God, we're heading to the communion table, the Lord's Supper here in just a, a few minutes uh, that we're gonna, in a special way, Lord, celebrate as, as one body, one church, one family uh, here this year and today. Father, I pray that as we open up your Word now to this all-important story that many people tend to gloss over this idea of, of the Magi, the wise men from the East, God, may we understand with some more depth today uh, what's going on <clears throat> about the Magi and how they relate to our lives and teach us about what it means to come to Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me, I, I got a little bit of a frog in my throat. It's not COVID, don't panic. I just uh, had to clear my throat there. Hey, uh, so if, if the Magi is what we're focusing on this year. And as I kind of hinted to in my prayer, if there's one thing that these Magi teach us, these unlikely visitors at Jesus' birth, now watch this, it's that we don't simply surrender to Jesus all the negative stuff in our lives, but even first and foremost, <clears throat> the positive stuff. This is a really important point, one that you don't want to miss. You see, most of us as Christ followers today tend to think that we need to give over to Jesus all the negative and burdensome things in our lives, and we're correct, we need to do this. We're told this all the time, to surrender to Jesus, our addictions, our greed, our sin, our, our unhealthy desires and thoughts, you know all the Bible verses. Lay down your burdens, cast all your anxiety upon him, consider yourselves dead to sin. Uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. The Bible is replete with calls for you and I to lay down these nasty, difficult aspects of our lives to God and to Jesus, because only he can be the one to help us. We've heard that, we get it, so far, so good. 
But then along come the Magi, and they show us that it's not just the burdensome things that God wants us to lay down before Jesus, but even the good and fine things in life, that these also we need to give over to Jesus for the simple reason, as we've entitled this series, that Jesus is better. That's the message of the Magi, that God wants all of us all of who we are, as the old saying goes, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that he wants us to choose him first, even over and against the good stuff in our lives. And so these magi, these secular religionists from the East, they laid down not just their idols before Jesus, but even their blessings before him. That's been the point of this series that they laid down initially their treasures. You know that story, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they teach you and I that we need to lay down our good stuff before Jesus as well, and he'll tell us what to do with it. But it doesn't stop there. As we saw last week, in order to lay down their treasures, they also had to set aside their jobs for a time in order to make the long journey to find Jesus. And once they even found him, they then had to alter their jobs because they were secular religionists. They were workers of magic and they were gonna have to change that a bit now in order to follow Jesus. And so their very jobs, the jobs that they loved and provided a great standard of living for them, these two had to be given over to Jesus. Why? Again, the point of this series, because Jesus is better and he loves you, he loves them, and he wants all of you, your treasures, your jobs, you're not gonna get rid of those things, but you're gonna surrender them to him following the pattern of the Magi. Don't miss this. They show us that even the good stuff, like our treasured possessions and wonderful jobs, can and should be given over to Jesus. Who would have thought that these unlikely visitors from the East, people not at all familiar with the teachings of the Bible or the Jewish religion, let alone Jesus, would teach us such a profound lesson. But they do. And then today, there is one final thing that they show us. In continuing their pattern of laying the good stuff down before Jesus, when we look closely at the Magi and their lives and what they had to do in order to find and follow Jesus, we realize there's a third thing that they laid down before him, and that is their families, their families. Let me show you, this only makes sense. I want us to look one last time in this series at the description of the Magi found in the Christmas story. They're only found at one place in all of the New Testament, Matthew chapter two, verses one through 12. And Matthew records the opening salvo of the story this way. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I put it there in yellow for you so you wouldn't miss this. I want us to focus right now on this phrase, magi from the east arrived. We've spent some time with this already in the last couple of weeks. Magi, we know what that means. They were workers of magic. They were secular religionists who came from a very faraway land to find Jesus. 
But Matthew makes a point to tell us that they were magi from the east and they arrived assuming a, a very, very long trek or journey. Now, where would they have arrived from and why would that be important? Quick history lesson that will help us dial into this. This is a map that's gonna be very foreign to you, no pun intended, because it's a map of the Eastern Hemisphere of the world, I cropped it a little bit, as it existed 2,000 years ago, with all the empires and nations of 2,000 years ago. That's why you don't recognize most of the names here. But I'm gonna familiarize you with it right now so that we can make sense of this and, and what the Magi show us in their trek to find Jesus. Uh, the map begins way here on the left in this very, very little nation. It's so small, they don't even put the name of the nation here. They just put number four, and then the key was down here. Number four is the nation Israel. Most people don't know this, but Israel's a very, very small nation. This is where Jesus was born, in Israel, along the Mediterranean Sea here in the town of Bethlehem. Now, when it says, Matthew says, that visitors came from the east to visit Jesus. Obviously, east would be that way. And most scholars, we noted this a couple of weeks ago, would say that they probably came from this area here, which was the vast Parthian Empire in the first century. It's where modern-day Iraq and Iran are. And, and it's the history of the Persian people, the Babylonian people. And we know from our history books that the Magi, these workers of magic, uh, were, were, had a hundred years history, a hundred years history history in that area. They, they were advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar and other people. So it would make sense that they came this way, week-long journey to come to Jesus at his birth. Some argue that it might have been closer, the Nabataean uh, community here where modern-day Jordan is. Some argue that it was that, but most agree that it would probably be here. You'll see why all this is important in a minute. And then some even surmise, because we don't know, that maybe they came from really far away. The Han Dynasty, which is where China is right now. Maybe they came from there, which now explains that Christmas hymn that you have sung for years and maybe not understood. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We this is why they don't let me sing. Travel so far. That, that hymn, like what does that mean? Like we already learned they really weren't kings, but some surmise that maybe they came from really far away, the Han dynasty, which would have been China or used to be called the Orient. So three options. Uh, the Nabataean community here, maybe closer, a few days away, the, the Parthian Empire most likely, or maybe even the Han dynasty. Now why is that important? Either way, anyway, whether they came from really far away or even a little bit closer, here's what we know about Magi from the Nabataean community, the Parthian Empire, or the Han Dynasty, and that is they would have all had families. Monks from China back then might not have been married, but if you know a Catholic priest, they still have a mom and dad, and they still have cousins and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters. And if they were, as we most likely assume, from the Persian or Babylonian empire back then, they would have been able to marry like Protestant ministers do, and they would have probably had wives and children. So at the very least, we can assume that they had families and that they left their families in order to pursue Jesus, a long trip from a faraway land. 
And then to cement this even further, look rather quickly at the closing description that Matthew gives us of the visit of the Magi, because this also contains a clue. He says, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So it's interesting. I, I, I always think like this because I, I love to be a student of the Bible. Matthew didn't have to include this phrase I put there in yellow and it would have read just fine. He, he could have said the Magi left by another way. <laughs> but he doesn't. He says they left for their own country. He makes a point to say that. He's basically saying what? They're going home. They're going back to their fatherland, their friends, their families, whom they had left in order to find and follow Jesus. And so the bookends of this story contain an important element. Don't miss this. The Magi put Jesus first, even above their beloved families, that they chose to temporarily leave from wherever in order to pursue and find Jesus. And let's humanize this, shall we? They had to have been thinking about and even missing their families while they were away from them, as any of us do who have ever traveled and been away from our family. This has been a very different year for me, but in any given year, because of my role as your pastor, I, I do a fair bit of traveling uh, throughout the year. In fact, Dale will like this. I see him here. He's a pilot. I travel uh, anywhere between 50 and 70,000 miles uh, by air uh, every year. Uh, whether it's to Europe for the European Leadership Forum or if I'm leading a tour of Israel or I spend at least uh, four trips a year out back to see dad in the east. I go to conferences. I'll let you in on something. I haven't missed, except for dad, any of that this year. Don't tell anybody. But COVID has been a little bit of a blessing there as I've been able to just to spend all my time here with you guys. But in many years, I, I would do a bit of traveling. Why is that important? Well, a few years ago, I developed a prayer that I have been praying with the people that I travel with that I'd never heard before, but it actually has caught on. I now hear other people pray this and it's kind of endearing. And the prayer goes like this. It just comes naturally out of me. Say we're uh, in Europe and, and with some other pastors and we're having a meal before us and I'll say, hey, let's pray. And I'll say, God, thank you for this food and the blessings that you've given us. And oh yeah, Lord, would you please protect and provide for our families who are not with us and watch over them and keep them safe until we return. Amen. I, I pray that all the time when I'm gone. I pray it for Kim, I pray it for my adult children, I pray it for you, my church family, that in my absence, that God would protect you and provide for you and keep you safe till I come back. Why do I pray that? Because your family. <laughs> I pray that for my family because I miss and love family when I'm gone. The Magi had to have been as human as we are. And they laid down their precious families in order to pursue Jesus. And you have to believe, we'll talk about this more in a second here, that when they went back to their families, they said, let me tell you what we found. Better yet, let me tell you who we found. And they would start to include their families in what they laid down before Jesus 
And so let's add all this up because we're gonna accelerate now. If you don't hear any other message this Christmas season, hear this from the Magi. Jesus is better. He's the best choice all around. God wants us to choose him first. And he doesn't want you to lean on him just during the tough times as you're taught, but also to lay down all the good stuff before him, even the positive stuff all the time, like your treasures, your job, even your family. It's what the Magi teach us and show us. Now, in the few minutes we have remaining, before we go to the communion table together, we're gonna do something kind of special today with communion, I want us to wrestle with a few questions that I think need answered once we understand what the Magi show us here. And the questions are this, why would this be so? I mean, why would God want us to lay down all aspects of our lives, even the ones that are positive and that we're doing just fine in, why does he want it all laid down at the feet of Jesus? You ever thought about that? I mean, it, it, it's actually a good question to ask. I mean, we get the fact that God wants us to lay down the negative stuff. It's beyond our control. We need help. He's there to help. So we lay it down, say help. But if over here, we're doing okay, like with our family or our jobs or other things, especially this is Scottsdale and PV and Phoenix, we're doing fine financially, many of us are, then why do we have to lay that down before him? We kind of got that. It's how many Christians tend to think. So why do the Magi show us something different? And then why family? I mean, why would family be included in things that the Magi trusted Jesus with? I mean, it's my family for crying out loud. In the few minutes we have remaining today, I, I want to make a couple of biblical observations about family. We're going to kind of explode this Magi pattern here to, to, to now look at what the Bible says in other places about the family that will help answer these questions as to how and why what the Magi show us is so relevant to our lives today. And so here's the first thing we need to understand about what the Bible says about family that might give us a, as a clue as to why God wants to have more control of our families than many of us are letting him. And that is that God invented the family. It's his idea and it's his creation. Did you know that? Culture did not invent family. I mean, secularists would believe that. They would say, well, family got invented biologically billions and billions of years ago and just sort of developed culturally. Well, God would differ with that. God, as we'll see in a second here, will say, as much as you might think it was your idea, it wasn't I invented the family. It was my idea and my creation. How do we know this? One of the most beautiful poetic passages in all of the book of Ephesians occurs in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15. It goes like this. It says, for, Paul, apostle speaking, he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I put it in yellow there so you get the connection because it's very beautiful. He's kneeling before God the Father, from whom every family, and he makes it clear, whether here on earth or in heaven, anywhere, everywhere, is named. What does that mean? It's actually kind of fascinating. In the original Greek, it, it, it pops a little bit more than it does here in the English, but the Bible was originally written in Greek and the New Testament was. In, in the Greek, it, it says this, that I kneel by my knees before the patera. So Greek word for father is pater. In this conjunction here, it's patera, P-A-T-E-R-A. I kneel before the patera. Now watch this. From whom every patria... 
that would be the Greek word for family, P-A-T-R-I-A, is named. And back then, when they saw patera and patria, father and family, they would have had this aha moment, a smile would have come across their face, and, I see, and they would have said, I see what Paul is doing here. He's saying that, that that link linguistically between pater and patria is really, really close, and he's saying that's how God is with families, that, that he is so close to them because the family has been patterned after God. And then they would have jumped to this in their minds. They would have said, but God is not just a father. He's also a son in Jesus. And then there's this Holy Spirit. He's an eternal trinity that has existed in loving community for all of eternity. And maybe that's how he made the family. Maybe when God decided to create humankind, he said that just as the Trinity has enjoyed this beautiful, loving, truthful community for all of eternity, now that I'm making creation in human beings, let's add a little bit of that to it and call it the family. I kneel before the Father, the Pater, from whom every family on earth, Patria, is named. It's telling us here, don't miss this, this is rich, that the entire concept of the family, its existence and function is derived from and patterned after God himself. And once you and I understand this, that God is the designer, the inventor, even the pattern from which family is derived, we're ready to now get the point, and here it is, gang, that no one is more suited then to protect and care for our family than God, the maker of it all. That you can trust him with your family because he made it, he designed it, he's in control of it. And that's the point. It's a call to trust, it's a call to lay it down. You know, as I prepare my messages, I'm, I'm very cognizant of, of how much teaching I do before I give you a story or an illustration because I, I've learned over 30 years to read the glassy look in your eyes when I give you too much Bible too fast. And sure enough, I can see it right now in your eyes. You're struggling, but you're like going, and I'm sure it's the same way I'm lying. I mean, you're like, okay, I get it, I get it. So, so let's put this together for our lives today. What might be a good illustration here? And as I sat in my office this week and thought of, you know, what illustration would, would show this to us, you got, fault me for this, but I always think of cars. I, I, you know, man, I'm a car guy. So here's the illustration I thought of. <coughs> it hit me that, um, say for the sake of argument, and this is a big stretch for most of us, that, that in a town like this, you happen to be fortunate enough or blessed enough to own a Ferrari or a McLaren. But where I come from back in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, I had never seen an exotic, finely tuned, beautiful car like a Ferrari or McLaren except on TV. But 13 years ago when I moved here, my son and I were driving through the air park one day and my son who was 13 said, Dad, look, it's a real live Ferrari. And sure enough, we saw it drive into a real live Ferrari dealership, you know, uh, here in Scottsdale. We were just blown away by that. And since then, we've seen uh, a few of them now and then. But say you're one of the ones who might own a Ferrari or a McLaren, a finely tuned, very, very intricate, beautiful, exotic sports car. And say for the sake of argument that there comes a point where it needs some attention. It needs either regular maintenance or some troubleshooting or heaven forbid a repair. And say for the sake of argument that you decide to take it to the mechanic down the road at Grulix or something like that, 
and you drive in, pull up next to this Honda Accord, and you say to the mechanic, hey, I'm having this problem with my McLaren or whatever it is, and, and I need you to fix it. What do you think a regular mechanic would say to you? I can promise you what they'd say, even though I don't own one. <laughs> they would say, I'm sorry, Mr. Grant, we, we don't fix cars like that. This is way too intricate, way too exotic for us. If, if you want to, to fix your Ferrari or a McLaren, go to a Ferrari dealership. Go to the people that made it because they understand it, or at the very least, go to somebody who's an expert on this. But it ain't me. And folks, it's no different with God. Have you guys found yet that family is a finely tuned, intricate, at times even difficult entity, or is it just me? Family can be difficult. Marriage can be difficult. Parenting certainly can be difficult. In-laws, we call them the outlaws, can be difficult. Uh, certainly family gatherings can be difficult. We love our family, but at the same time, they can be very difficult. Families are powerful. They are rich in relationality. And here's the point, they're given to us by God. And only the designer and maker of family is adequately equipped to do the regular maintenance, troubleshooting, repairs, and even surgery that is necessary at times. And you can trust him. But again, many Christians shy away from this. We think, as we'll see in a second here, I got it, God, I got it. Whereas God's saying, no, you don't. Listen to the Magi. They set their families aside to pursue me and then they eventually laid their families down, I'm sure before me, God would say. And you and I need to learn to do the same. That next year, as some of you know, I'm, I'm coming out with my second book. Uh, Neil would call this tacky product placement right now, but that's not the purpose. I'm coming out with my, my second book next year. And it's been a real labor of love. You guys have helped a lot with it because it was born out of a couple of series that we did uh, over the last 13 years out of the book of Esther. The book is entitled, When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. It's a book about for Christians or people who just feel far from God, like we all do at times. And one of the things that I challenge people to in the book, which is a lot of the theme of Esther, is to, to dig real deep and, and, and to opt for what Brennan Manning, when he was alive, called a ruthless trust in God when things get really difficult. And I've received all the permissions for the stories that I tell, so I've received permission for a story I want to read for you, give you a sneak peek right now out of this book that will come out sometime next fall. But this is a story we worked hard on to tell it rightly, but it's very, very meaningful, as you'll see right now, for Kim and I. And let me just read it to you directly. Here's what I wrote. A few years ago, when one of my teenage children was going through a dark period of life, our family was in turmoil. I've said for years that I can handle with God's help anything that befalls me, but when one of my kids is hurting, my life is wrecked. My wife felt similarly. I remember driving to work and whereas normally I listen to music or talk radio during this season, no music or discussion would soothe the ache in my soul. It was a difficult time for us all. I was deeply concerned for my child and not sure how it would all work out. It was a consuming thing for my wife and myself. Pause right there. Many of you can relate to that. You've been through very difficult things with either your kids or parents or whatever it might be, and you get it. It just, it just knocks you off center. I go on to write, at one point I began to focus on the providence of God. 
I embraced the reality that though things looked dark, God still had this under control. He wasn't surprised at the struggles of my kid. He wasn't caught off guard. He knew this would happen before any of it came to pass. He also had a plan for my child, his child. God's promise spoken through the prophet Jeremiah came to my mind, and I quote, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Though this promise was given specifically to Israel in their time of darkness, I did not mind embracing it for my family. I remember a calming effect wash over me. It was palpable. God's control over circumstances was greater than even my child's choices. I trusted that as human will careened into God's will, God's good will would prevail. My wife joined me in embracing this promise. She bought a plaque with this verse from the prophet Jeremiah and displayed it prominently in our house. Every time we glanced at it and embraced the promise, we were comforted. As the psalmist wrote, and I quote, weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Eventually the darkness passed and our child saw daylight once again. Though it took time, good choices were made and healing occurred. Over time, joy was restored. It was joy born of comfort contained in the stubborn embrace of God's providence. It works that way. Are you going through a similar scenario where one of your loved ones is in a dark place? Or are you facing a darkness of your own brought on by circumstances you didn't see coming? If so, you understand all too well that a fallen world can wreak havoc on your God-created soul. Yet you can also experience comfort that is rooted in the promise through faith that you embrace of God's providence. I think you guys get the point. He can be trusted with your family. He really, truly can. Why? Because he designed it. He made it. He patterned it after his very self, the Trinity, which has existed for all of eternity. And get this, he loves your kids. He loves your parents. He even loves those family members you don't like very much, much better than you ever could or will. And so who better is to be trusted with your family than God? And once you and I get this, that the pattern of the Magi is to lay our stuff, <coughs> even our positive stuff, down before Jesus, and that he can be trusted with them, then there's only one other thing we have to observe. And this is the second biblical observation about Jesus and family. But this one's important, because some of you have already thought of this, and it's this, that it takes a lot of faith to entrust your family to God. It does, but it's worth it. The Bible is gonna be clear on this. It takes a lot of faith to entrust your family to God, but it's worth it. And now we have just about 10 minutes before we go to the communion table. And so I want us to wrestle with this for a moment because this is a really important point. This is where the rubber meets the road for many of us who are all interested in laying the good stuff down before Jesus. When you think about it, there are only three options when it comes to how to love and lead your family. And I'm not just referring to parenting, but when it comes how to love and lead your aging parents, when it comes how to love and lead your grandchildren, when it comes, if you're a sibling, how to love and guide and lead your brothers and sisters, when it comes to any family members you have, 
If you are a Christian here today, a follower of Jesus, you want to have a positive impact on them. Even though it can be difficult, you want to love and lead them as best you can. And when you think about it, there are only three options on how to do it. And I'm going to list the options here on the screen. And the options are DIY or LCDI, which we'll explain in a minute, or GTTG. Here's option number one, DIY. We all know what this stands for. Say it with me. Do it yourself. This is the American way. I'm telling you, it's how the average Christian functions today. Here's what we do. We say, oh, I believe in Jesus and I need him. And so I have Jesus over here and I have these rough areas of my life. You know, I swear too much or I drink or I'm not always honest and I, and I know I can be grouchy. And, and so I, I, I kind of lay those negative things at Jesus. Come to him, all you are weary and heavy laden. He will give us rest. And I trust him with those things. But then... Over here, we got the things in our life that are going well, right? So things like, hey, I'm doing fine financially and my job's going pretty good and the family, hey, I got that one at least so far. And so we don't do anything with those. We opt for option number one, DIY. We do it ourselves. And maybe we'll read the odd book by James Dobson or something like that, or Dr. Tim Kimmel or something like that to sort of get a booster shot. But essentially we say to God, either knowingly or unknowingly, I got this, but I need your help over here. It's how the average Christian and American functions. And as as we've seen, the problem with that is that you're not allowing him in to an area of life that he made, he designed, that he wants to be in control of for your life, not just to help you during difficult times, but to get the most out of it all the time. This do-it-yourself option might be American, but it's certainly not Christian. So then there's a second option that's even worse, but again, I see a lot of Christians fall into it. You're wondering, what does LCDI mean? You ready for this one? Let culture do it. And a lot of Christians opt for that. We basically say, I'm gonna trust my kids lock, stock, and barrel to the educational system, to community programs, to friends we don't really know, to society in general. I see it a lot in Scottsdale. We say we want our kids to fit in and kind of be people of the world. Show me a Bible passage for that one. Show me where that is at all. God's number one concern for your kid. Now, does God want your kid to be productive and a good member of society? Yeah, maybe, probably. But that's not his number one agenda for your kid. His number one agenda for your kid and for your parents and for your brothers and sisters is they might know him and follow him. <laughs> and it ain't gonna happen by letting culture do it, amen? Culture is not gonna teach your children or anybody in your family how to know and follow God. Only you and God can have influence over that one. And even you feel hamstrung doing it. You ever found that? I do. I feel like culture right now is a runaway decadent train. And my kids and many of my family members have way too much involvement in that train. So as we're gonna see in a minute here, I give them over to Jesus all the time because I feel helpless. Can you relate to this at all? Because I feel helpless, I realize I really need him. If ever I needed to give over my family, it's now, and it ain't through letting culture do it. So what's the third option? We should make bracelets. Remember those WWJD bracelets with GTTG, give them to God. That's the option. Give them to God. Now listen very closely, because some of you are threatened by this. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that you don't care for your family. 
I'm not suggesting that there's not an aspect in which you are doing it, if you will, yourself with God's help and very involved, not asking you to ignore anything. I'm simply saying, give them to the one who is best able to handle them, who knows them and loves them more than you ever could. Don't let culture do it. Don't try to do it yourself. Give them to God because that's what God wants you to do. And that's what's best for your family. Proverbs 29 verse 25 would say it this way. It's not necessarily talking about family, but it fits. It says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. <laughs> and the question is, are you, really, are you willing to trust him with your family? Are you? Because here's what most of us don't realize. And this is why many of us fall into option number one or two, the do it yourself or let culture do it thing. <laughs> is it? it's quite, quite frankly, it's a lot easier to opt for number one or two. It really is. I've been watching this for years, and I, I got my own three adult children and hopefully someday some grandchildren. But it's a lot easier to take the bull by the horns and just try to control it myself. And, and certainly a lot easier at times to just sort of let culture do it. It takes a lot of work, a lot of work, to trust God with my family and to let go and release them to him. And here's what else is important. It takes a lot of faith to do that. In fact, they're probably, I would argue, you're gonna love this, it probably is the second most amount of faith you're ever gonna need this side of heaven to entrust your family to God. You're saying, what's the first amount of faith? <laughs> well, that was the faith you needed to save your pathetic soul when you trusted in Jesus. That takes the most faith because your eternal destiny hinges on that one. But to then be told that you need to, to release your kids, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your grandparents uh, to God, and first and foremost, trust him with those beautiful, precious family members of yours. It takes a lot of faith. And though this is for another sermon, I'm a realist. I know what some of you are thinking, because I, I, I counsel people with this one almost weekly is that you could tell me a story where you did entrust them to the Lord and he didn't do what you think should have been done. You entrusted them to God and they still made bonehead decisions. You entrusted them to God and they still fell into circumstances that have been catastrophic. You've entrusted them to God and there's still pain. And you go, how does that work? Why should I ever trust him again with my family? It's for another sermon, but I, I will say this, and we need to think about this as logically or biblically as we can. I don't have an answer to why God does or doesn't do with your family. I don't. I do have a Bible verse in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. It says that the, the secret things belong to the Lord and the things revealed belong to us. So there's plenty that God does that we're not gonna make sense of this side of heaven, and we just have to trust him for that. But here's what's even more powerful with this. <laughs> is that when you're tempted to say, well, God did this with my family and I'm not sure I can really trust him, ask yourself, well, what's the alternative? <laughs> I mean, the only other alternative is to DIY. And you've tried that enough. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? It doesn't work any better. In fact, a lot worse than trusting God. Heaven forbid you let culture do it. You don't wanna trust them with your kid or with your parent, or what have you. No, at the end of the day, whether we understand it all or not, we need to trust him with our family. Who better than God? 
And here's the key. It's my final thought. We got to wrap this up in the next couple of minutes. It takes a regular habit of GTTG, of giving them to God to be successful here. In other words, I have no illusions. I have no expectations that today, if you choose to trust God with your family, will be a one-off. It won't. It will just be the start or continuation of a lifelong journey where every day (coughs) you need to give your family over to God. It's a moment-by-moment activity. You might have noticed that I uh, brought a rocking chair here up on the stage. This is from home, my home. And uh, this was a rocking chair that was given to Kim and I over 30 years ago (coughs) with the birth of our first child, Hannah, by my sister-in-law, Lori. And it's one of the few pieces of furniture that we have kept for a very long time and will keep as long as the Lord had us, has us here forever. We're reserving it someday for grandchildren. Uh, right now, we're look, just looking for godly men. So if you know of any, uh, we're searching for them first, and then we're gonna get grandchildren, but not one before the other. So <laughs> this chair is very meaningful to me because it has sat next to my home office or in our bedroom uh, every year for the last 30 plus years. It's a special chair for me because this is my GTTG chair, give them to God chair. You'll relate to this. When Hannah was first born, I sat in this chair (laughs) about 60 pounds ago and hair ago and I, I sat there holding my beautiful little girl who was very colicky. So I'd sit in this chair a lot, rocking her to sleep at night and I'd just be breathing prayer after prayer, giving her to God. I said, God, I don't know what you got for this kid, but she's precious. I love her. I know you love her more. And the psalmist tells me that every day of her life has been ordained for her in in your book or written all of her days. And she's yours, God. She's yours. And then as Abby was born, I sat in the same chair rocking it. And then as Paul was born, the same chair. And for years, I gave my kids to God. Even when they were toddlers, they'd come and sit on my lap and I'd read them a story in this chair and I'd give them over to God. And then, you gotta laugh at this, they, they became teenagers, and they didn't wanna sit on my lap anymore, and they, they didn't wanna come see me rock in a chair, and so they'd be out doing their thing, and uh, like many of you, I, I didn't know what they were doing half the time, and I was a little bit worried about them, and, and so now picture this, same chair, still at home, and it'd be 11 o'clock at night, and I'm sitting in this chair waiting up for them. And not knowing what kind of shenanigans they were involved in, I'd be, G-T-T-G, I'd be giving them to God in this chair. And now as adult children, they're moved out of the house, yay, and they're on their own. And uh, I I love them and we keep in touch with them. But again, they're adults, they're making their own decisions. Sometimes we agree with them, sometimes we don't, but we still worry about them. You ever found that? And I sit in this chair because it sits right in my office at home. And I will many times be found rocking in this chair, giving them to God. And as I said, someday I hope to rock grandchildren in this chair, giving them to God. Do I care any less for my children or my, 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 my family by giving them to God? Not at all. If anything, I care more. But I know who made them. I know who loves them. I know where they are best placed. And they're best placed in the feet of Jesus because that's what the Magi show me. Jesus is better, always and everywhere. And everything needs to be laid at his feet. 
He's worth it, and you can trust him. Why don't you bow with me? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the lessons of the Magi. I feel like we're just scratching the surface in many ways because the Bible is so rich and deep in what it teaches us about you. But Lord, as we've learned over the last few weeks that we have these treasures, our own gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We got our jobs and we have our families, God. Like the Magi, we wanna give them over to you. We realize Jesus is better and that he is worthy of our trust, even for the good stuff. And so we lay them before you. As we go to the communion table now, Lord, the Lord's Supper, we pray that you'd meet us together as one church at this table. And that, Lord, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus into this world and eventually his death and resurrection for our sins, may we be drawn to a deeper faith, a deeper trust in this moment. And I pray this in Christ's name and we all say together, amen.